Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews, Hebrews 1. It's found on page 846 in your pew Bibles. I thank Chuck this morning because he only gave me three verses to read. I figured that was his present to me as he was leaving. And there's no odd names in there. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he had provided purification for sins. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. May God bless the reading of his word. So as Jesus prepared to leave his disciples, he said to them, it is good for you that I go. Because if I go, I'll send you another paraclete to look after you. So I tell you, since we've had this update about my retirement, it's good for you that I go. As my wife and I walk around the house every so often now, something happens and we say, that's a sign. Which is short for, that's a sign that it's really time for us to retire because we're forgetting to do stuff. You know, we're turning on the water, forget to turn it off. So this week I was so pleased because I got my sermon and my PowerPoint done early. I was ready to send it on Friday midday rather than Saturday night. Hmm. And apparently I forgot to send my PowerPoint to the projectionist. That's a sign. So there you go. Now, this whole stretch now, since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at, well, it goes back to, back to the beginning of last year, right? We looked at the, at the grand sweep of the Bible from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the coming of Jesus. And really, there was only one theme, one trajectory, one movement throughout the whole Old Testament. God was going to restore his world to the condition it was in in Eden, even better than that. God was going to restore his world to the condition it was in before sin corrupted it and harmed it. And we see the whole movement of the Old Testament, God seeking to restore his world. And he required the cooperation of his people, and they never cooperated. So the progression, it never moved ahead. The world never got better. God's people got worse. And God kept warning and warning and then promising. And basically his people ignored him. And, and eventually they looked forward to a halcyon future when the Messiah would come. And he would set all things right. And Jesus comes and says, I am that Messiah. But outwardly, little changed. Israel was still occupied nation, occupied by infidels who butchered Jews from time to time. Life was still hard. And so the question arises, if Jesus is the fulfillment of God's, all, all God's promises, then why don't we see the fulfillment of all God's promises? And, and so Jesus explained a, 
a twofold fulfillment. His first coming and then his second coming. And so this whole year we've been looking at what life is like between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Now Hebrews ties into that same theme of life from the beginning, when Jesus first comes until when he returns. Hebrews fits into that same theme, that same overarching perspective throughout the New Testament. And the question Hebrews asks is, will we survive in this time between Jesus comes and, and when he returns? Will our faith survive? And really, faith in Greek is the same word as faithfulness. It's not really will we continue to believe cognitively in Jesus. The question is, will we, unlike Israel, will we be faithful the whole time until Jesus returns? Because he he expects us to be faithful. The question is, will we make it? Will we be faithful? Now, I would say there's, there's two things that challenge our faithfulness. One of which, the people that Hebrews was written to, they faced one of these two challenges. We more likely face the other challenge. But let's take a look at the two challenges first, and then we'll see how, what the author of Hebrews had to say to them about persevering until the end. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, or just listen as I read. Hebrews chapter 10 explains the original occasion and their circumstance. Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, Remember those earlier days after you'd first received the light when you first heard the gospel? When you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And out of the times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you yourselves knew that you had better and lasting possessions. So he writes, if this is your, given that this is your past, he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Persevere so that when you have fulfilled the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. You see, at that time, the Christian gospel was beginning to spread. The church was still small. People didn't know. The the world around them didn't know what to make of this new cult, seemingly. Now, the Roman government occupied all the known world at the time, including Palestine. And they were reasonably enlightened. They were not vicious, the Pax Romana. They were really seeking the prosperity of the peoples they conquered. All they required was political loyalty. And the way you show political loyalty is through a religious ceremony. You don't have to believe it. It's it's quite irrelevant. You know, just do it. You worship the deceased emperors... And you don't have to believe that the emperors really... The emperors themselves didn't believe they were gods. Many philosophers wrote against the whole notion of human beings becoming gods. They wrote against the notion of gods in the first place. You don't have to believe. All you got to do is add the worship of the emperor to your normal worship and, and everything will be fine. We'll know that you're not rebelling. There's no insurrection plot going on here. And you'll have the peace and prosperity that brought about by the Roman Empire. 
Well, you've got to pay taxes too, but mainly the, the worship, insincere worship was fine. And for the bulk of the world, this didn't matter. People got conquered. They don't care. You know, they worship already. They worship dozens of gods in the first century. You can add another one. It doesn't matter. But the Jews wouldn't. And in 63 B.C., about 100 years before Hebrews was written, when the Romans conquered Palestine and they required the Jews to worship the Roman emperor, the Roman gods, the Jews refused and the Romans slaughtered a lot of Jews. They still required it. Jews still refused. They got slaughtered. Time went on. They still required The Jews still refused. They got slaughtered. Eventually, the Jews wore the Romans down. The Romans got tired of slaughtering people, and they made a concession for Judaism. If you're Jewish, you don't have to worship the emperor. Everybody else has to. Of course, they despised the Jews for it. They considered them antisocial, disloyal. Uh, they, um, there was racism, ethnocentrism against the Jews because of it. They were an odd people, totally out of step with their culture. But the Jews could survive. So you had two people, those who would worship the emperor and Jews. And both could live. Problem comes up when some of those Jews, and particularly some of those Gentiles, become Christians. Because the Romans don't have a third category. Oh yeah, Jews are okay. Jews are exempt from this policy. But Christians are also. They don't have this category, Christians. All they have is these troublesome Jews who, because of the name of Jesus or Christ, create trouble everywhere. And they were not exempt from the obligations. And certainly those who had been Jews were not exempt. They were rebellious Jews. Those who were Gentiles were less exempt. You used to worship these gods. Why are you fighting about it now? But because Christians were not yet known to be a separate entity, and because they refused to worship, then they were persecuted. And so Hebrews is written to these people because they're wearing down. They've had their, they've publicly been insulted, they've been persecuted, some have been imprisoned, and when you're an enemy of the state, your property is confiscated, so they've lost all their homes and their wealth. And Hebrews is addressing, how do you live in this time? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4 adds another note to it. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. They knew some people had been killed, but they hadn't been killed yet. And the author of Hebrews is writing to these people who are tempted to give up their faithfulness and go underground or just give up Jesus, go back to the synagogue. And they're tempted to, just so they can save their lives, so they can save their fortune, so they can save their homes, so they can keep out of jail, so they can fit in with their neighbors and not be mocked publicly. They want to give up. Now, I don't think we face that temptation so much. I think for us it's a different thing altogether. Mostly for us, I think, 
It's much more pedestrian things. Well, no, no. They're pedestrian in the political sphere, but they're big in our lives. Mostly for us, I don't think it's persecution. Mostly, I think, in our, for us, it's different kinds of struggles. We don't struggle persecution, confiscation of our goods. We don't struggle with jailing. We don't struggle with the threat of death. We just struggle with dissatisfaction in life often. Maybe our studies are harder than what we'd like. We're not as bright as... You know, you live in Lexington, you live in West, and you live in Acton, you live in Concord. How are you going to survive school? High school, I'm talking. You know, maybe that's what it is. Or, you know, in an Asian community, we've got all these trained, talented musicians, and maybe we don't have that. Or it could be dissatisfaction with our looks, with our level of popularity, with our sports ability. It could be dissatisfaction with the college we can gain entrance into. It can be dissatisfaction because we want relationships we don't have or we don't want the relationships we do have. It can be anxiety over health. It can be the, you know, the struggle to have children or it can be the struggle with the children we have. There's a whole lot of dissatisfactions. And it's natural to kind of get resentful toward God over these things. Because somehow, somewhere, we got the idea that God really exists to make sure my life is comfortable and good and easy. We don't face persecution, but we face struggles. In actual fact, sometimes it's not the struggles we face. Sometimes it's the positive opportunities in front of us that pull us away from God and faithfulness to him. Sometimes it's our skill at studies that pull us away from him because we get rewarded by success and we devote ourselves to that success and find less time for God. Sometimes it's our jobs because they're going not poorly, but they're going so well that we pour ourselves into that and we advance quickly and further and higher. Or we go into grad school while we're working so that we can advance our careers, and they advance and become all-absorbing. Sometimes it's the thrill of getting a promotion and getting more money so we can buy a bigger house, live in a better town where our kids can get a better education. Sometimes it's just the growing influence and the power that we can wield, uh, particularly with those who have political ambitions. Sometimes it's the, not the struggles that take us away from God, but sometimes it's the positive things, the temptations of success that take us from God. So I, I don't think we face quite the same situation that they did for the same reason, but we face the same general temptation. And the question becomes, will we be faithful to the end? Will our faithfulness last throughout our lives? Because the premise of Hebrews is this. We start with faith. And that's a crucial beginning. We don't earn God's approval. We do nothing. We can do nothing to, to, to cause him to reward us by saying, Oh yeah, you're good. I'm going to save you. We, we start with nothing except throwing ourselves on God's mercy. But Hebrews says, starting is not enough. We've got to finish. Same word. Pistis, we, we start with faith and we end with faithfulness. 
Faith covers from the beginning to the end. Faith and faithfulness. And the two can't be separated. So Hebrews writes to these people who are facing persecution, in danger of giving up their faith, and it tells them, it gives them basically four reasons why they should stay faithful to Jesus. And in their context, four reasons why they should stay faithful to Jesus and not revert, in their case, to Judaism. Now, we're going to look at these four reasons, even though our temptation is not to leave Jesus for Judaism. Our temptation is to leave Jesus either because we're upset about our lives, or we leave Jesus because we want more money, we want more success, we, we want more relationships, whatever it is. We'll look at their, their four reasons, because even though we're not tempted to go back to Judaism, the reasons are parallel to ours. So it starts in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. All the premise, all the whole argument of Hebrews begins with this. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3, the scripture reading from Jason. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is where, the fo this is the focal point of the whole book of Hebrews, the basis of its argument, that Jesus is the son. Now, we need to, I need to explain this just a little bit, because we, we know the phrase, many of us read the Bible, we know the phrase son of God, we know the phrase son of man, and it's really easy to suppose son of man means he was human, son of God means he was divine, and that's got nothing to do with anything. It doesn't mean that at all. Son of man, we won't look at that. That comes from Daniel 7. That's another day. Son of God. Son of God. It doesn't simply mean he's divine. Think about it. Traditional culture, son of God. What does a son do in traditional culture? Right? He inherits the family business. What is a son like in traditional culture? He looks like the father. You know, we used to have a fellow on worship team named Hanky. For, for our sakes, he said, well, call me Hank. But he was Indonesian. His name was Hanky. He had a son after he left here. And we saw his picture on Facebook. And it's, it's a week old, maybe. I don't know. I look at that face and I think, of all the people in the world, I know whose son that boy is. And I wrote to the mother angel and I said, I don't see any of your features here, but I see all of Hanky's. And she wrote back immediately and said, yeah, I call him Little Hanky. I got Big Hanky and Little Hanky. Just looks... So, what's the... Why call Jesus Son of God? It's not notion of not divinity. The notion is, look, the attributes of the Father, they pass down to the Son. Looks the same. Character is the same. Father-Son relationship. Family business. Whatever the Father did, the Son now does. And so we see that Jesus is the Son. And look at how he is, he's described in verse 2. He's spoken to us by his Son. who be, He's appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the universe. Do you see the family resemblance? God is the creator. God is the destiny of all things. Jesus is the son. He was the one through whom all... He was the, actually the one who fashioned it. It was God's, man, God's plan. God was the architect. Jesus was the builder. He was the one who fashioned it. He created. And God's the one to whom all things go. Jesus is the one to whom all things go. He's the heir of all things. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. God's glory, when God enters the world, you know the old medieval photos of, of Jesus or the apostles or Mary with halos around? This is the notion here, is that when God 
enters the world, he enters, his presence is glorious, not human and mundane like ours. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the spitting image of his Father. He's the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. God created by his word, Jesus sustains all things by his word. And then he provided purification for our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. So Jesus was incarnate and died for us, and now he's exalted in heaven. Jesus is the spitting image of the Father, does what the Father does, has the same character as the Father. He's the visible representation in our world of the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. And that's really, you know, the first three verses of Hebrews and all the rest of it is unfolding those first three verses because it says, look, if Jesus is all this, then what would you give up Jesus for? If Jesus is creator, sustainer, the destiny of all things, if Jesus is the one who atones for our sins, if Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, what can you gain that's worth giving up Jesus? There's nothing that compares. Now, for their sake, you know, the author of Hebrews goes on and, and contrasts Jesus with Judaism because they were tempted to give up Jesus in order to save their lives, but they were going to run to Judaism for safety because the Romans made concessions for Judaism. But the author of Hebrews says, look, you give up Jesus for what? You give up Jesus for... And then he goes through and contrasts four things they could give up Jesus for. And, and Jesus is superior to all four of these things. At first, in... In chapter 2, maybe they would give up Jesus for the angels. Now, this requires a little bit of background. You know, Judaism, on the one hand, you know, the, the law came through Moses. But on the other hand, Judaism at this time was teaching, well, it came through Moses, but, but the angels brought it to Moses. You know, God's far off. And, and, and there's too great a distance between God and us. But God used his angels to give the law to Moses who gave it to us. Would you give up Jesus for a religion that came from angels? Jesus is far higher than any angel. Why would you do that? And so he says, we must pay more careful attention to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels, the Old Testament, since the message spoken was angel, through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how will we escape if we ignore so great a salvation as that brought to Je by Jesus? Why would we give up Jesus for a religion brought by angels? And then, you know, to some extent, Judaism came through angels, but to another extent, it came through Moses. And so chapters 3 and 4 compare Jesus with Moses and said, are you going to give up Jesus to go back to a religion that came from Moses? I mean, Moses was the greatest man in the Old Testament, a great man of God. But the whole point of chapter 3 and 4 is, just as Jesus is superior to the angels, he's certainly superior to Moses. And so, 
In chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, we read again, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. He says, look, in the wilderness, the Jews turned away from Moses. Don't be like them, because you have greater than Moses. You have Jesus. Don't be like they were and harden their hearts in the rebellion, in the wilderness. Keep to Jesus. He goes on thirdly. Jesus is greater than the high priest. Now, now the high priest was the pinnacle of the Jewish religious system. He was the one who brought purification for the sins of his people. He was the only one who could go into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And in chapters 4 to 7, Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is superior to the high priest. Jesus doesn't go into the temple once a year to make purification. Jesus goes into the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple. And he doesn't go in once a year because his purification doesn't wear off. He goes once for all time, for all people. If you want purification for sin, you don't go to the temple and the high priest. You go to Jesus. And so he writes a third time, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the high priest. And now his fourth line of argument, the same direction. If the high priest is, is not high enough, he says, take the high priest, take all the priests, take the temple, take the sanctuary, take the altar, take the animals. Jesus is superior to all of that. The entire sacrificial system, Jesus is superior to all of it. And so he writes to them. Therefore, he says, keep in the faith, persevere. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict of suffering? You were publicly exposed to insult, persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be rich, richly rewarded. Persevere so that you will receive what God has promised. So Hebrews makes only four points. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the high priest. He's superior to the entire sacrificial system, the Jewish religion. Therefore, don't drift away. Don't turn away. Hold firmly. Persevere. Now, how about us? We don't run away to save our lives. We don't want run away to save our homes. We don't run away to save our friendships. We run away for other things. And the question that Hebrews asks us is, since our stakes are so much lower 
What could we possibly gain from giving up Jesus that's worth giving up Jesus? If he's not worth, if giving him up is not worth our lives, if giving him up is not worth our freedom, if giving him up is not worth our prosperity, what could we possibly do? What could we possibly gain by giving up Jesus that would justify what we've lost? Hebrews says, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. God has promised us great and diverse blessings. And he's begun to give us those in Jesus. He will give us even more in Jesus by the end of time. There is nothing that this world offers that can compensate us for giving up Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we lose sight of this. It's so incredible. Unbelievable that we would lose sight of the blessings we have in Jesus, but sometimes we take him for granted. Father, may the message of Hebrews inspire us the way it inspired the first generation, that we would put him first and keep to him no matter what good things or bad things happen to us in this life. We pray this for our sakes. But we pray this also for his glory, when with gratitude, in his name, amen.